As a driven dentist, you see the world differently. Where some see scarcity, you see abundance. When others want to give up, you keep going. You're building an amazing life of significance. That means you can't rely on ordinary advice from ordinary advisors to get to your goals. You want advice that's going to help maximize your net worth so you can take even better care of the people you love, the causes you care about, and make your dent in the universe. But the fact is, this advice remains hidden because relatively few professionals are well-versed in them, and the extremely affluent don't care to let you know about them. Join us as we pull back the curtain to reveal the often hidden advice and strategies used by today's most successful individuals and families. Welcome to Dental Wealth Nation. Here's your host, Tim McNeely. Hey, welcome everyone. I am so excited that you are here today. And uh, within the dental world, DSOs and private equity, doctor-led financing, right? There's so many different ways and so many different entities out there. Are they friend or are they foe? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And by the time we finish, you're going to know how you can leverage the equity in your practice so you can have even more options for achieving your most important goals. You're going to have a deep understanding of the different options that are available to you, the, the driven dental entrepreneur, for taking advantage of what's really a unique time in history. But even more importantly, you're going to feel differently when you hear the word DSO or private equity or, or doctor-led partnerships. You're really going to have a different framework for thinking about everything that's going on in the marketplace today. And wow, I am so excited. We've got Kyle Francis today with us. And Kyle is an M&A advisor with Professional Transitions. And not only is he just an M&A advisor, but he's owned 25 dental practices himself. He's also an investor in this. And he's been helping dentists just like you for over the last 15 years. He's completed in excess of 400 transitions with a valuation in excess of half a billion. That's B with a billion. So Kyle has uh, done this just a couple times. And I'm so excited to have him here to share with you and really dive into the, the marketplace and what's going on today. Kyle, welcome to the show. Tim, thank you very much for having me. Oh, man. We were chatting before we went live, and what a wealth of knowledge we're going to cover today. And so give us a little bit of your background and how you got started in, in doing what you're doing. Well, I'd love to say there was a huge plan. Uh, there wasn't. <laughs> um, uh, right out of school, uh, right out of college, I thought that I was going to get into institutional capital. And so I uh, thought that I was going to go on board with, you know, a company like Goldman or something like that. And uh, anyway, I, I, I shadowed a couple of those groups and found out that, you know, working the 100 hours plus a week and being on the road 200 days a year just wasn't for me personally. Um, so uh, there's two ways of getting into that type of world. One way is through an advisory like that, and the other way is specializing in an industry specifically. And I found this funny little world, funny little world of dentistry and all of these entrepreneurs that some of them knew what they were doing and some didn't. And so I figured, you know what, I can kind of help here. So I start out with uh, uh, Henry Shine um, at the time Sullivan Shine was selling equipment um, out in West Texas. I've got a baby face and people weren't taking me very seriously. So uh, I started to do contract work. I would do lease renegotiations, buy sell agreements, associateship placements really anything I'd get my hands on so people would take me seriously. Slowly but surely, by 2007, I was getting more calls for that than anything else. And so I started up a company just to uh, just do M&A work in dental. So, uh, you know, over the course of time, again, we've done over 400 transactions and I I'm loving it. It's, uh, it it's a lot of fun. And I have been a uh, practice owner as well. I consider myself a much better uh, M&A advisor than I am a practice owner. <laughs> but um, nonetheless, I have some experience there as well. Excellent. And we really are in a unique time in history today. And, and for you listening and, and diving in, right, post your questions in, in the chat. If you've got some questions for Kyle, please post those in there. Happy to, to bring them up and, and ask him live here on the air for you. But right, talk a little bit about just the marketplace and what we see going on today. Because if you're a dentist owner in a practice, you've got some options, don't you? Very true. Um, I, I guess whenever I started um, uh, selling practices again 15 years ago, um, uh, there weren't nearly as many options. Essentially, what the general uh, idea was, was you're going to sell your practice either to an associate or to a partner or to someone else moving into a community. And that was essentially it. 
Um, uh, DSOs and private equity had really not started up. DSO was not a word, I don't believe, at that point. Um, it was called umbrella corporations at that point. Um, but uh, slowly but surely, what we've kind of seen is going to be there has been consolidation. And that consolidation kind of has funneled over from the uh, medical space into dentistry, um, which has been the hardest one to consolidate with all the different mom and pop dentists that are out there. And, uh, you know, 15 years ago, whenever I started, there was essentially 0% consolidation, right? Now there's somewhere between 25 and 30%, kind of depending on who you, uh, who you like and who you trust. Um, and we're going to be going towards something like 60 to 70% consolidation over the next 10 years. So um, we're right in the middle of a very, very big wave that only happens once, you know, so it is kind of a unique time in history. Now, when you say that 60 to 70% consolidation, what does that mean, right? How can we even think about that? What is what are we looking at happening? Yeah. Well, I think that a good correlation is going to be kind of what's happened in other medical verticals and what's happened in other countries, right? So in other medical verticals, I mean, whether we just kind of consider hospital systems, right? Or if we consider, uh, like call it the dialysis market and Davida, who's come in and uh, essentially been the 800 pound gorilla in that room, there will be that <laughs> in dentistry, right? So there's going to be the largest one. Uh, right now, that biggest one is going to be Heartland as a, for instance, but really whenever you look at it, they have 1,400 practices, right? So they have less than 1% total consolidation. So there's so much left to go. Uh, that being said is there are, you know, 350 plus uh, uh, DSOs that are out there now. And um, I would consider them very, very similar to dentists. Some of them are good, some of them not so good, right? And so what I think that our, one of our biggest jobs is, is as, as advisors is going to be to make sure that the right ones end up winning this game, right? And hopefully that uh, empowering the dentists that are along uh, with that ride to allow them to have a really, really, really great upside on the back end as well. Okay, so really we're looking in the next, what you said, how long until we see that consolidation? Mm -hmm. So Ten about years. 60 to 70% of the market is actually gonna be held by these DSOs and, and group practices. And the sole practitioner will be about 30% of the market. Yeah, and there's a lot of macro reasons to get you there, right? So this isn't something that we have control over. Um, quite frankly, uh, if, if I had my brothers, uh, I, I don't know if I would want this, you know, but regardless, this is what's happening, right? So the macro factors out there are going to be, you know, uh, high student loan uh, costs, right? Uh, the changing demographics of dentistry. There's a lot of folks who are coming out that are wanting different things than uh, practitioners wanted 20 years ago. Um, and then also a high regulatory environment, right? And uh, there's much more things that a doctor needs to understand and do. And uh, not just uh, being an excellent practitioner, not just being an excellent businessman, but there's all of these other layers of regulation they now have to deal with. Um, so because of that, uh, it's nice to have support organizations on the back end that can help with those different layers of regulation. Okay. So, right. If I'm a doctor, you know, running my own practice, is this a threat to, to what I'm doing? How, how should I be thinking about everything that's going on today? I, I'm very hesitant calling anything like this a threat. The reason being is that if we think we're going to go to something like 60 to 70% consolidation, that still leaves a whole bunch of single practices out there, right? So um, I consider it uh, options, right? And I consider options are good things, right? So beforehand, uh, call it 15 years ago, we didn't have these options. We essentially had your singular option of selling to an individual. Um, now we have more and quite a bit more because of the, the competitive, competitiveness in the marketplace. So overall, would I consider it a, a, an issue or a problem? I don't think I would. I would consider it, uh, uh, you know, exciting, <laughs> right? And the, uh, there's lots of different uh, avenues that they can take um, that could be very beneficial for them financially. Um, but I, I don't, I'm, I'm hesitant to ever make a decision out of fear in that way, um, because I don't think it's necessarily going to put the mom and pop practice out of business. It's just going to be different moving forward. And so um, you're going to have to probably run a different practice in 10 years than you do at this moment. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's a bad decision either. Quite frankly, we have a lot of people that go through a process of learning what their practice is worth and then deciding whether they want to transact or not. And we have a lot of people decide, no, that's not what they want to do. Right. And we end up putting uh, them in a place where they don't need to do that and then kind of empowering them with the right way of moving forward as that single practitioner. So um, my thought is that if I can be agnostic as possible, <laughs> right? And uh, understand that there can be good on both sides, then hopefully we can empower people to make the best decision for them. Yeah, right. And I would agree with that, right? Options are, are good, right? The, the more options you have, the, the better you can structure things for your family, for creating wealth for yourself and really achieving what's important to you. 
And let's walk through some of these options, Kyle. Kyle, right? what are some things available to the, the doctor today? And, and for our viewers, go ahead and, and tap like. And, and the more you tap like, the more options we're going to share with you. <laughs> well, so let's start with the easiest one, right? Which is going to be the, the classic way of doing things, which is going to be selling to an individual, right? Um, selling to an individual can be done a couple of different ways. We have a couple of ebooks on our website that can kind of walk through this as well. So it kind of shows you that optionality, but I'll describe it to you as we go. Um, the, the first way is going to be just 100% sale. If, if you're kind of getting more, uh, more near the end of your career and you want to just go ahead and sell your practice, that's one way of doing it. Uh, another way of doing it is having an associate come in and eventually buy in or buy you out of the practice. Um, that is my least favorite way, by the way, out of all the different options that we're talking about, and it's the one that's most used. Um, the reason being is, are you familiar with the success rate of, uh, of associateships? Go, go ahead and give it to our audience here. 20%. Right. So only one out of five ends up working out. That's horrible. Right. And so I used to do associateship placements all the time. And I got so tired of hearing either from the uh, potential buyer or potential seller that, hey, why did you put me with that bum? We used to do all sorts of personality profiling, all sorts of different things to try to make sure that transition went great. But it was really, really hard to crest that 20% success rate. So I decided to focus on things that have a higher success rate than that. Um, so we try to do partnerships early on, right? So that probably leads me to the next way is you could have somebody come on board as a partner um, really, really early. Um, I love the book uh, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell about how you make decisions. And so I think that people can determine whether that person is going to be a good partner much faster than they really think, right? And it really ties them into making that decision and not trying to step away from it um, just because something gets a little hard, right? Um, uh, the, the, the next way that I would consider um, is going to be that you could also uh, band together with other doctors, right? Whether that's other specialists or other doctors and kind of create a group practice, right? So that's gonna be a concept that kind of came in vogue uh, 70s, 80s, and then the kind of in the early 90s as well. Um, nothing wrong with that either. Doctor-led, doctor-owned organizations are awesome, right? And you, it allows you a lot of flexibility in terms of what you want your schedule to be and the amount of cover, um, but kind of combining together marketing. Uh, typically, you get better deals on supplies and all those different types of things. So there can be really great ways of thinking about it from that side as well. And then the final way is going to be um, going with some sort of institutionally backed group, right? That institutionally backed group um, can kind of have a couple different ways of thinking about it as well. Uh, the first way is, yeah, they'll just buy 100% of the practice and you can uh, you can carry on as an associate. That can be a good choice for someone who really just doesn't like owning their practice, right? So if you love the dentistry side and you don't want to do all of the other things, then suddenly that, that can be a great way of thinking about it. Um, typically, you can also roll some equity into those platforms. So instead of owning just a singular practice uh, by yourself, you're now kind of owning a mutual fund of dental practices. And then the final way of thinking about it from a DSO pers perspective is going to be as a JV. Um, a JV is going to be kind of uh, very in vogue right now and where you continue to retain a certain percentage of your own practice while having a group come in and purchase the additional percentage. So you still have an equity stake within your own practice, but that equity stake is now way more valuable than it could have been beforehand. So um, again, I know that I probably just kind of went fire hose on you, but there's a lot of different ways of thinking about a transition. Yeah. So, right. We've got that traditional sale. We've got partnership models. We've got selling to a DSO and, and working back as an associate or even what you were mentioning. Right. We, we've got the, the institutional back groups, the private equity, and then even looking at, at things like, uh, you know, where where you are, you know, just kind of working back and staying in your practice. So, so lots of options. How does someone start thinking through these things? Right. What's the starting point for, for figuring out if one of these options is right for you? We well, have to be intentional, first of all. So the thing that we struggle with most is going to be we probably have, oh, I don't know, uh, maybe somewhere between seven and eight hundred uh, dentists a year um, come in and look to start doing a prospectus with us. Um, we end up finalizing about 400 prospectuses a year. So apathy is what we deal with most and it's not even close. <laughs> so um, because there's all of these other really important things going on in life, right? And uh, I almost kind of consider this kind of like life insurance in a way, right? Um, it's, a, it's not something you really think you need to know until you really need to know it. And um, so if you can begin with the end in mind, I think that's a really good way of thinking about this. And uh, being educated, I think, is going to be a, a big thing as well. So the way that I would consider being educated, so I just kind of put myself in that scenario of, okay, so I've been a practice owner in the past. How would I want to make this decision? And that's going to be, what is it that you have, 
right now, right? So not from a personal standpoint, but from a business standpoint, what is it that you have? How much is it worth? And what are we working with to start with, right? Because if we don't really know that, we're kind of spitballing, right? My advice is going to be way different to a doctor who's owned a practice for two years and has already grown to one grown a $1.5 million practice to somebody who bought their practice 10 years ago and has essentially kind of kept it in stasis or somebody who's grown a pod of practices, right? Five practices together. My advice is going to be way different with those. So we really kind of have to understand what we're working with, with first. So I think a, a valuable thing to do is to create a, a prospectus or an appraisal on your practice to understand what that is. Okay, so really a good starting point. And I love that you mentioned intentionality because I think that so often gets missed. And right, we may be intentional in our business or health goals, but so often maybe we're missing that just intentionality. And what does that big picture look like? And what's most important, right? What kind of lifestyle do we want? What kind of practice do you want? And what do those pieces look like? And the clearer you can get on that, then all of a sudden, what structure, which way to go, almost kind of emerges from your goals instead of trying to back into one of these things, doesn't it? Yeah, completely. And I find that a lot of decisions are actually made just kind of being falling into the decision, right? And that's really, whenever you think about it, not the best way to make it, right? So maybe you get a letter from a doctor who's graduating from um, middle school and you reply to that one singular letter and you decide, hey, this is the person I want as my associate. It's like, well, how many people have you interviewed? You know, like not not very many, I'm guessing, <laughs> right? Um, or you get a uh, an email from a certain DSO who's looking at entering that specific market, right? And you say, okay, I'll just start a conversation with just this one. My thought is, is wow, think about all of the different options that you have, right? And maybe, uh, maybe that one singular DSO is not going to be the right fit. Who knows? Maybe it is, right? I'm not saying it's not, um, but... Uh, my thought is the best way to make the best decision is by having the most information that you can have at your fingertips, right? Yeah. And I think that you start by understanding what the practice is and then fun- figure out what your goals are from there and then uh, deciding kind of the best plan of uh, kind of the plan or strategy to use going forward. Yeah. When should a doctor start this process? When should they start thinking about these things? Well, I mean, uh, I always say that it's better to start sooner rather than later, right? Um, This consolidation, again, is only going to happen for another 10 years. Um, If it is something that is worthwhile to consider, it's better to get in earlier rather than later just because the consolidation wave, um, uh, essentially there's exponential amounts of interest that can be gained in the interim, right? And so if you you end up getting on the consolidation wave kind of two years before it's done, you just don't gain as much, right? And so uh, I think it's better to understand what those options are. Even if you decide not to do anything, at least you know, right? And so um, I, I think it's important to start a conversation earlier rather than later. Um, yesterday is my answer, probably. <laughs> and it's just about for every age, right? Whether you're a, uh, you know, a 30-year-old or whether you're a 70-year-old, our average age of client is actually 41 years old. So um, we do typically work with kind of uh, younger doctors. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because that's the... the, the the place in life that I am, right? But um, uh, we do work with all shapes, all sizes. And again, I think it's always better to have a plan in place earlier rather than later. Yeah. So, right. We keep kind of talking about consolidation here. And and if you're listening, I'm Tim McNeely. We're talking with Kyle Francis and we're talking about, you know, DSOs, consolidation trends and how you can leverage the equity in your practice so you can really accelerate your success and achieve your most important goals. And and as we talk about, you know, this consolidation wave over the the next 10 years, right, why is that important to to really take advantage of of now? Are we seeing higher valuations, right? What's going on? To, to make this such a, a unique time? Well, uh, I think that if you look at the, the earliest part of consolidation, um, the main beneficiaries there were going to be the private equity funds who invested into the groups. Um, every single time a new practice was bought, it almost always was bought at 100%, and maybe a certain amount of rolled equity could be gained. Um, but overall, the biggest winners there were going to be the private equity funds. Um, as consolidation has become more and more competitive with more and more groups, um, essentially um, buying after the exact same uh, practices, it's kind of changed where the power dynamics are. So the power dynamics are actually much more in the favor of the dentists if they know how to use them, right? And uh, so, I mean, uh, in very, very many situations, we'll have you know, we uh, bring a practice that is call it two, two and a half million dollars in top line revenue to the market. 
we'll have something between 30 and 40 different buyers who are looking specifically at that practice. We call them down to what we believe are going to be the top five to top 10. Um, we don't want to spend too much time with superfluous groups. Um, so we kind of understand what those doctors needs and wants are. And then we end up getting offers from nearly all of them. <laughs> so um, anyway, that was not the case 10 years ago, right? So there might've been one group, right? Or two groups. So um, competition has driven this a lot. And at some point or another, the consolidation is going to take place where the large groups are buying the other large groups, right? And there's going to be fewer total buyers, right? That has not happened yet. I don't know when that's going to happen, but at some point or another, that curve will start going the other direction. Um, uh, to RI, um, 2021 is going to be the highest value um, deals that we've ever seen in the past and the most deals that we've ever seen in the past. So um, is this the high? I don't know, right? It'll be interesting to see how 2022 ends up shaking out. Yeah, uh, and if anything, this is kind of an, an unexpected result because I know there was a lot of talk just as you know, many of the baby boomers and dentists start retiring, you're gonna have a glut of practices, which actually a lot of people thought were gonna lead to lower valuations. Yep. But instead, we see by going to groups, you actually get higher valuations and you can unlock even more equity in your practice. Well, yeah. So I actually I wrote a white paper back in 2008. We haven't talked about this yet, but I wrote a white paper back in 2008. And uh, it was about how I believe the dental practices were severely undervalued whenever you compare them against nearly any other asset class for businesses. Right. And the reasons for that is that banks have artificially put caps on the amount that they're willing to, to lend on a certain individual. Right. So there's these debt ceilings that we end up dealing with. And so the debt ceiling is way more important than what the actual cash value of the practice is or kind of, you know, how much we believe the cash flow of that practice is going to be worth over the course of time. Um, that's another big reason the consolidation has happened, right? Because because banks have arbitrarily limited the total amount that a singular dentist can go in and purchase the practice, private equity has come in and kind of helped shape that market on the back end and actually pay the correct price, right? It's not even an inflated price. It's just the correct price for that asset. And uh, unfortunately, banks have not gotten on board, right? And so um, most of the time, if we end up having a group and an individual uh, uh, kind of bidding on the exact same practice, if that decision is just being made based on financials, the DSO gets it 100% of the time, right? Yeah. And it's because they can offer more, right? So whenever you have private equity backed and then also kind of different types of debt structures that you can use on the back end, um, we're just comparing apples to oranges. So. Um, that's one of the big reasons that consolidation is is uh, is kind of on fire, though, is because baby boomers are retiring. Those practices are just not being sold to the individuals, typically. Yeah, yeah and I'm going to ask you here in a, about a case study in a second, because there was a, a doctor you were working with, or a group of doctors, and the senior doctor was looking to, to sell out, and there was an offer on the table about 1.7, but you were able to, to get them a little bit more. But we're going to save that story until we get a couple more likes on the video and then we'll, we'll go ahead and share that with you. But you gotta, you gotta like the video if you want to hear this story. And I promise you, it's one you want to hear. And so, you know, valuation and the money you can get for selling your practice, certainly important, but there's other things that, that are involved in that too. I know a lot of doctors wonder, what about my legacy? What about my staff? Right. Right. Are my patients going to be taken care of? What are some of those other non-financial factors that, that really come into making this decision? Well, maybe I can, uh, I'll, I'll tell a quick story to help um, kind of define that. I remember early on in my career, I was down in West Texas, I was living in Lubbock, and I sold a couple of practices to a group down there. And it was terrible. <laughs> and it was so bad. I, uh, the, the doctors were chased away. I think the patients all left, you know, uh, the staff all turned over. The, the group was really ticked off at me because I put everybody together, right? And at that point, I was like, you know what, I'm never doing this again. You know, um, it's funny how it never works. <laughs> so um, uh, what I've ended up finding is that I find that DSOs are actually pretty similar to dentists. Um, there are good ones and there are bad ones. There are ones that have kind of the right intentions and ones that have the wrong ones. So I've had, uh, you know, really, really, really great experiences with uh, DSOs. I've also had really great experiences selling practices to individuals and I've had not so. Right. And so as you end up learning about that, you end up learning about what type of profile that uh, individual doctor has, what type of practice that one is, and then what we think is the best kind of strategy to use on the back end of that as well. But you're absolutely right. Most of the time, we do not see that doctors end up choosing the highest value for the deal that they choose. Um, most of the time they end up choosing based off of what I call the soft stuff. Right. Uh, I think you call it the human element. Right. And um, the uh, the soft stuff to me is going to be you know, uh, 
is, is the practice going to be in good hands? Do we like and trust the people that are involved with that group? Um, do we think that they are going to be patient-centric? Are they not going to affect the doctor-patient relationship? Um, you know, are they uh, are they going to be staff-focused, right? So is, is the staff going to be well taken care of on the back end? And lots of times, it's not like the doctor's moving out of town, right? So the doctor's still going to be there. And if that's going to be the case, then suddenly, are they, uh, are they going to keep on taking care of the different folks that I see at the grocery store after I'm no longer at the practice, right? There's all these things that are really important to consider. And again, they, they oftentimes trump the amount of dollars. Now, the money has to work, right? So um, if, some, if, if a group is willing to offer $10 million and another one is willing to offer $1 million for the exact same asset, well, sometimes the, the money trumps, <laughs> but, but most of the time it fits close to equal and that's kind of where it ends up coming out whenever we put people in a competitive environment. Most of the time it kind of comes down to who they like and trust. Yeah, right. I, I think you even kind of mentioned that and referenced that at the beginning, right? DSOs are, are not necessarily good or bad, right? The the financing, the the different you know institutional buyers, not necessarily good or bad. It's what aligns with you, your goals, your values. And once again, the clearer you can get on that, the better it is. And you actually have an opportunity to really shape the future of the market by being part of the solution, by, by actually selecting the, the right groups and the right buyers who can help carry on the legacy that you've built. Yeah, I'm not going to name names, but I often tell uh, doctors that we start to work with that if you tell me that group X or group Y ends up winning this game, I'll consider it a travesty, <laughs> right? Yeah. And um, uh, I do think that a big uh, thing that uh, I end up looking for now is going to be making sure that the groups that are patient-centric and do really value the doctors that work for them and, the, and those kind of things, um, I want them to win, <laughs> right? Because I want the uh, the dentists to be the biggest winners, winners in all of this. And the doctor-patient relationship isn't going to be um, uh, kind of clouded by a whole bunch of folks uh, that are, you know, on their actuarial tables, you know? So uh, I'm a numbers guy, right? And I really don't think that I should have a say in that doctor-patient relationship. That's uh, that's something that they need to have a say over. And if I can do the mundane tasks on the back end in order to help them do that better, I'm all game. If, yeah. if I'm gonna affect the way that's gonna be done, man, I think we're on a slippery slope. Yeah, I know what well said. And so so let's dive into that uh, that case study and that that doctor in Texas that, that you were able to so help. We got enough likes. Yeah, right. yeah, we got some more likes coming <laughs> in. And so, so people have earned the story here. Yeah. Um, well, so uh, the, the doctor had reached out to us. Um, they had been approached by DSOs in the past um, and didn't feel comfortable with the ones they talked to. And by the way, rightfully so, I probably wouldn't have felt comfortable with the ones they talked to either. Um, but uh, came to us and uh, the oldest doctor really wanted to retire. So there were three partners um, and then one associate. Oldest doctor wanted to retire. The associate was not going to be in a financial position to buy that person out. Very nice practice. It was a big one, you know, somewhere in the $5.5 million top line revenue range. And whenever we went through and evaluated the practice, we saw that if we sold that uh, third stake, so one third stake of the practice, we could sell that for something around $1.7 million to another really highly qualified provider. Now that really high, highly qualified provider would need to be able to do tissue grafting and implant placement and all sorts of different stuff, right? But in, in total, we did think that, that was something that would be under a debt ceiling. So I uh, went down and talked with them. And as we started talking through what those options could end up looking like, um, he brought his two partners in and we started to think through, okay, well, is there a different way of leveraging this equity kind of uh, better? And they told me what their experience was with the different groups. And, as I, and, I, and I told them, hey, do you know what? I think that what would be worthwhile is if you end up spending, call it 10 hours worth of your time uh, talking with an additional, additional couple groups, um, I think that we will be able to have a much better financial outcome for you one, right? And you may end up finding something that you like any, even better. Um, we did. We ended up spending that amount of time. Uh, we did. I think we had something around 50 interested buyers in that practice. I introduced them to nine. So I think they spent nine hours of their time because I limited it to one hour meetings. And uh, they ended up choosing one that was a joint venture based group um, that was not too far away from where their practice was, uh, you know, kind of a smaller doctor owned, doctor led group. And it was backed by a private equity fund. And instead of selling that one third stake, $1.7 million, or kind of thinking about it in terms of what that total practice was worth of call it like 5.1 million for a third, a third, a third. 
Uh, instead, we ended up tra transacting it for $13.4 million, right? That's a big difference, right? And um, I seriously changed the way that they thought about you know, retirement and their life going forward. Um, the younger partner was pleased as punch. He was able to keep a, a large stake in the practice going forward. And the associate was able to buy in rather than uh, having to take a third uh, chunk of it out, right? So overall, it was a really, really great deal on the back end. And I think they were able to leverage that equity um, more appropriately <laughs> than they were considering, right? Now, here's the thing. Just as many people who come in and run a process like this um, will end up going that direction. Um, but we have just as many go the other. Do you have time for one more story? It's oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I, these are these are what I love hearing. And I know okay. our listeners love hearing it too. Okay, good. Um, so uh, we were working with a pediatric practice down in Augusta, Georgia. $2.6 million top line. I'll tell you what, I mean, the thing was blowing a go in single provider. Um, and uh, originally we thought that this was going to be a really good thing for DSO. I got lots of really great offers in uh, from DSOs. Um, very, very lucrative for, for in terms of offers. But whenever he looked at it he's, and he kind of uh, saw who all was out there and what the playing field ended up looking like, he made the decision, you know what, really what I want is going to be someone to do life with. He wanted a partner, right? And um, so we ended up finding another pediatric dentist from Walla Walla, Washington, moved him in, and he ended up buying a one half stake of the practice. Now, here's the thing. Uh, did he make the wrong decision? No. He did not, you know, he's going to be the one living it, right? So my thought is, is that we, we empowered him to make the right decision and he saw the entire playing field. If you would have just made the decision without knowing that, then um, he would have made the decision without all things known. And to me, again, that's kind of, uh, that's not the best way of making that decision. So I, I think he did great, you know, and in the long run, who knows, maybe we'll work with him again and sell the other 50% of his practice whenever he's ready to retire. Yeah. Right. And what an amazing thing to, to come in and bring that partner, right? Have someone to do life with, so to speak. And once again, that goes back to, to what you were saying, right? Go in this with some intentionality, right? Get clear about what's important to you, right? And what's right for you, what's right for your family, for the, the people you love. And if you get clear on that, all of a sudden these decisions become a lot easier. And so I love that, that you were talking about intentionality, Kyle. And I think that's one of the most important things and important lessons to, to come out of today is get intentional and mm. start early. Yep. Um, well, it, and really, it's not just not just in uh, with dentists, right? So I mean, like this is uh, in life and in business, you know, I mean, I think that um, intentionality is going to be incredibly important, right? Um because if you just kind of float, right, then that's kind of the uh, the type of answer that you'll end up getting is going to be one that's just kind of floated to you, right? But sometimes you get lucky, right? And if you get lucky, that's great. But I would much rather have a little bit more control over what that uh, back end looks like. And again, that intentionality is how you get there. Well, and starting early also gives you some time to do the all important tax planning piece mm. that often gets ignored, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, it is very often that we will end up going through running a prospectus for a potential seller, um, going through getting offers, choosing the right offer, uh, talking with CPAs and talking with CFAs on the back end and hearing that the CFAs and CFA, CPAs had no idea that they were even considering this, which is like, oh, no, you know, Um so uh, again, I would consider that uh, part of the team, right? And so uh, typically whenever we try to gather everybody as a team and understand what this is going to mean for their long-term success or their long-term goals, we want to have buy-in from everyone, you know? And um, yes, in answer to your question, the earlier you can get in and the earlier that you can be talking with your advisor team, uh, the better. Yeah. So, so even if it, an exit is five or 10 years on your horizon, start thinking about it now and, and get clear, understand those options so that you can start moving towards that goal instead of just wait until the last minute and saying, what can I do? Because then your options are not as plentiful. They're much more limited. So start early. Another yeah. great lesson. And now, it's a, it, I can't tell you the amount of times that we end up talking with docs uh, and they'll say, hey, I want to be done in six months. It's like, OK, well, I now have a singular option for you, you know. And if you really want to be done in that six month time horizon in three months, we're going to have to consider, you know, price reductions, because in order to hit your time horizon, uh, we're going to have to make it attractive enough rather than looking for that right buyer, having the time to do it. So um, that happens more often than I would like, you know, um, and so you can't avoid that. There's something that is completely, totally avoidable. And it, all you have to do is compete, combat against the apathy. Yeah. No, very, very, very true. Now, Kyle, the other thing I really like about you is you just don't help in the M&A space, but you have owned 
25 practices yourself as an investor, as someone doing this in the trenches. So you understand it really, really well. And you're also that business owner, just like the, the dentist listening to this. And, and so, you know, this is what I call success factors, where we really dive in and look at the, the mindset. And we want to help people be more successful. And so looking back on your career in doing this, if you could start things over again, what would you do differently? So do, do I get the benefit of hindsight being 2020? Absolutely. All right. So if I get the benefit of hindsight being 2020, um, I think I would have continued to build once I hit that fifth practice. Um, I found that it was very hard for me to give over control and to delegate um, and that I didn't like the feeling of not knowing exactly what was going on at all times, all days and at all practices. So once I hit that fifth location, I suddenly started getting burned out. Right. So I suddenly couldn't be at all the different places, um, simultaneously. If you uh, have an office manager quit at a certain location, you have to go in and fill in and then rehire that person. Um, typically I did have doctor partners in my different, uh, in my different ventures. And so I had that pretty well handled, but, um, the, uh, the the overall was going to be that if I would have kind of invested in support structure, right, and maybe it had a little bit less ego <laughs> about what I thought I was really good at and essentially allowed other people to shine, I, I think that I would have had a different outcome, you know, and putting 25 dental practices together is a very, very valuable thing to do in this world, right? I didn't know that at the time, right? So I essentially was looking at it as I thought that dental practices were really great investments. And by the way, they were. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not upset with the financial outcomes that happened, but it would have been a much different scenario, right? And so uh, in thinking back hindsight 2020, I think I wish that I would have uh, kind of continually invested um, and then kind of doubled down on it. And um, again, I don't know if I'm the best operator in the history of the world. Um, I think that I'm probably more cut out for the M&A world, but um, that is my wonder is how okay. I would have just kind of continued to add to those to that original group of five practices. Okay. So, so you got to those five and you felt like you were kind of losing control and weren't able to visit the practices, right? Very, very common yeah. for a lot of people listening. Yeah. And, and, and instead of kind of reaching that point and saying, I'm out, you, I, I, what I hear you saying is you wish you would have gotten a little bit more uncomfortable and, yeah. and acquired the skills to keep scaling that it, just because you're curious what it would look like today. Yeah. So I've, I've heard a couple of really interesting um, talks about this, about how the hardest time in a DSO's um, life cycle is going to be somewhere between five and 15 practices. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to invest the amount of uh, money that you need in order to develop those different layers of management that you need in order to be successful. And then on the flip side, you really need those layers of management to be more successful. So um, uh, yeah, so whether it was, like, whether it was me be, being willing to take more risk, being the uncomfortable, part of it, um, uh, or whether it was something where um, I just couldn't allow myself to give up certain things and um, understanding that other people could have easily done it just as well, if not better than I could have. Um, so I think there's probably ego and then probably risk quotient uh, on both sides. Okay. Powerful, powerful lessons for you listening, right? Get rid of that ego and be willing to, to take those risks and delegate stuff. You may love doing it, but if it's not the most valuable thing you can be doing, you should probably get out of the way and let someone else handle it. Now, Kyle, culture plays a large role in success also. And, and I'm curious, what kind of culture exists in your organization today? And how did you work on establishing that culture? Yeah, so I would say that um, first and foremost, uh, we are, I wouldn't call, you know, radical candor <laughs> what we do, but it's close, right? So I, we want to know exactly where everybody is uh, at any one time and kind of the why behind what it is that we're doing and is it making sense? So um, if, if I think about, uh, you know, our business as a story, right? I think about how um, typically our clients are, you know, the protagonist in the story, right? And that we are the ones helping them along. And um, I love that support role, right? I think it's I think it's so much fun to see um, the eyes of our clients light up whenever we find that right partner for them, or we find that right different group that allows them to do the different things that they never thought that they would have the time to do. Um, I remember talking with the doctor <laughs> two years ago or so they finally took their first three-week vacation of their entire career, you know? And that was the biggest thing in the world to them, right? And that just wasn't possible, you know, uh, from beforehand. So 
Um, I think that uh, all of those things are, are, are super important. And I think that that really defines uh, who we are as a group. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, being empathetic, right? Understanding that uh, your perspective is not, the, is not the only thing that matters here, you know? And that uh, typically we're putting um, the largest asset that someone owns into the hands of someone else, right? Uh, in part or in whole. Um, gosh darn it, we got to nail that decision, you know. And um, so, uh, uh, being being very very honest and very empathetic, and making sure that we're the support system is kind of the the way that uh, I think that we all think on this side. Yeah, yeah right. W once again, powerful lessons. So I just absolutely love that. So you work with a lot of very successful dentists, right? They they built up incredible practices. They're great leaders, right? Really creating value in the marketplace. And, and have you seen some kind of pattern or formula or mindset that, that most of these dentists share, right? And what would you suggest that, that, you know, you as the listener can do? What are those mindsets? What are those patterns? What's that formula you see with the successful dental entrepreneurs that you're working with? That is a really hard question. Okay. Cause maybe I can take it a little bit of a different direction. If that's Absolutely. okay with you, I, th yeah. I, I, I think that'll answer your question. Maybe just in a different way. It's so funny. I, I remember being taught um, uh, the consulting uh, side of the business whenever I was on board with Henry Stein, and they did a really good job about talking about the business of dentistry and how things should look from a practice perspective and all those kind of things. I'll tell you what, though, we, I've done a couple uh, thousand prospectuses, so a couple thousand appraisals over the last uh, 14 years. And what I've seen is going to be there are so many different ways of skinning this cat, right? Um, I've seen practices that are three operatories doing $1.8 million and 70% uh, margins. You know, I've seen uh, practices that are 25 operatories with, uh, you know, 30 employees and uh, running 40% margins, right? And I've seen the inverse of both of those as well, you know? And so um, I think that if I had to peg it, if I had to peg a single thing is if you can be introspective, understand what it is that you like and what it is that you're good at, right? And then hire around that skill set. I think that's the key, right? Because if you're really, really great at developing those really awesome relationships with uh, patients one at a time, and you're only seeing, call it eight patients a day, right? And you're going to be thinking about, you know, true holistic dentistry, right? And that's what your passion is then get really good at that side. You know, don't have uh, a, a PPO or Medicaid driven practice. It's just not going to be a good situation, right? It just doesn't make sense. Um, on the other side, I would also say that uh, uh, a willingness to work is going to be the next one, right? So um, I think that, uh, and also understand where your burnout point is, right? So I think that I see that some people are not willing to kind of take their career to the next level by working through kind of whatever that plateau is that they're feeling. On the flip side, I also see that people will burn themselves out, right? And so kind of understand what that type rope looks like is different for everybody. And so uh, being introspective, understand what you're good at, and then understand what that type rope of work-life balance ends up looking like probably ends up being a good way of making a decision. But again, I see so many different ways of doing it. It's, um, it's become really, really hard for me to say that this is the certain trait that I see at this point. Yeah. But, but right, I think that's kind of the overarching principle, though, is right. So often as entrepreneurs, we we're wearing a ton of hats, right? We're, we're doing so many things and you're doing a lot of things in your practice and you can focus on, on trying to get better at a whole bunch of things. But if you focus on getting better at a whole lot of things, you're going to reach your, the end of your life and you're going to be mediocre in a whole bunch of things. Sure. But if you really find out what you're good at, what's your strengths, right? Like you said, practice that that introspection mm -hmm. and then focus on what you're good at and hire for the other areas, you're going to reach your, the end of your life and you're going to be really good at one thing. And, and I would tell you that that's that's the goal. So so that I think is, is great insight right there, Kyle, and, and love that. And that's a lesson all of us can learn. And so, so important to, to keep that in mind. Yeah. Well, I, I, I look at the um, the business that I have now. So professional transition strategies, it was just me for a long time, right? And um, if I look at the earnings during those years, yeah, they were good. Nothing wrong with it, you know? Um, however, the most rewarding thing that I've experienced is going to be watching the people who have come in to the company uh, exceed and do a whole bunch better than I could have done <laughs> that certain thing beforehand, right? So that goes all the way from, you know, business development to prospectus generation to making sure the clients are well taken care of and, uh, you know, talking back and forth and negotiating. 
man, there are people in the company now who are just better at it than I am, you know, and uh, watching that happen is hugely rewarding, you know, both financially and emotionally. Yeah. Now, yep. now owning a business, right? There's certainly a lot of positives to it, but there's also a lot of unseen hard work. There's a lot of struggles. There's a lot of late nights. There's a lot of anxiety and panic and worry, right? That's that's part of the entrepreneurial journey. And, and so what do you do to really maintain a, a positive and productive and successful mindset? How do you, how do you, you know, really stay focused and, and, and stay positive and, and not let the, the setbacks get you down? Um, wine. No, I'm kidding. Um, so, so, um, the, uh, I would say probably the, uh, uh, the biggest thing is going to be, um, uh, one of the guys on the, on the team, Brent, uh, he always talks about, you know, uh, developing calluses, right. And, um, making sure that, you know, that that one singular setback isn't going to define you one way or the other. And then also, I think you have a choice on what you decide to focus on. Right. And, uh, if you decide to focus on the different things that have not gone well, then essentially I think that that's going to inform your focus going forward. And um, I, I guess not dwelling on the things that are hard, you know, understanding that this, the, the certain hard thing happened and this is what you can learn from, you know, and hopefully not making that mistake again. Those are all very, very valuable things, you know, having debriefs with, with yourself of making sure that you understand the mistake was made. Gosh, darn it. I don't want to do that again. Right. Um, however, I think that the way that you dwell on things are going to be choosing to focus on the positives, right? And um, I think that if you look, and you really don't have to look very hard, you know, there are so, so, so many positives that may or may not have to do with financial outcomes, right? But um, could be on the uh, patients that you're helping, on the clients that you're helping, you know, um, understanding that I, as a dentist, uh, you have uh, the ability to, you know, recreate someone's smile, right? Um, uh, that they can now eat because of the work that you've done with them, right? So there's so many cool things that can be thought of in that way. And um, deciding to focus on those things, I think uh, that's that's key. Yeah, right. It's almost like you got to reach the end of your day. And, and right, we're real good at, at coming up with everything we didn't get done, right? You're real good at, at telling yourself, here's all the mistakes. Here's everything that went wrong today. But if you get to the end of the day and you force yourself to celebrate the wins, right? Mm -hmm. Celebrate what went well. That really helps with that that productivity and positivity mindset because you're reinforcing the good things that you did that so often we we overlook. Yeah, well, I've been uh, I've been thinking about gratitude a bunch over the last couple of years as well, and even um, being grateful for the times that it's not gone so well because what did I learn, right? So um, it's either it's either you won or you learned, <laughs> and so um, man, I am grateful for the times that I needed to learn some stuff, right? And where a partnership didn't work out, or where you know I, I, I put two doctors together and um, I didn't do enough due diligence on it, right? And I think that I'm better for that now, right? And um, I think that uh, that because of that, if you, if you decide that you're going to be a learner on those things, that's only going to be better you for the next one and the ones following. Yeah, very, very true. Well, well, thank you for sharing that that success mindset with us and, and walking through it. So so that to me is so important to, to keep in mind is as you're building your, your practices, building your life, building that amazing life of significance. And and real quick, I, I just want to throw this in here and look at some of the, the different books that you've got going on and resources is you've just got an absolute wealth <laughs> of resources for, for people. And I love this. I love sharing resources, love education. And right, we've got pick your own adventure, and you know, just give us real quick, you know, kind of overview. Okay, so that's by far the most fun, that's by far the most fun one. That essentially goes through um, the life cycle of a dentist. And do you remember those old choose your own adventure books? Absolutely. Who yeah, does this? Is, right? And so you grow, you know, you go to page fourteen if you decide to go into the military or whatever else. And so anyway, it's kind of just kind of a fun way of thinking through um, a, a, a dentist's life cycle. Um, I, I would consider it um, much more entertaining than informative, but really, we really did think through all of the different choices that could be made in a dental career. So um, yeah, just graduating from dental school, this essentially kind of gives you the different ways to consider um, kind of what your next step could be, whether that's going to be an associate with a, with, with a group, an associate with an individual, are, uh, are, are you more cut out to kind of go into the education realm, right? Um, so there's all sorts of different stuff there. Uh, buying a practice, selling a practice. I've given quite a few talks on those things as well. And so those are just kind of, there's some good checklists that you can use as far as who you need to have on your team and different things to consider. Um, so 
there's nothing in there that essentially says, hey, you need to use PTS, right? Uh, hopefully these can be used as, uh, as um, ways to be thinking about a, a big life decision. Yeah, no, great, great resources. That's why I wanted to, to pull those up and, and share them with everyone because they are so valuable for you and your journey that you're taking. Well, Kyle, thank you again for, for sharing so generously with us. And, and any kind of closing thoughts before we sign off here? I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe if, if, if I could leave you with this, um, I, I've, I've kind of long thought that, uh, you know, the idea of DSOs or private equity coming in the dental space is a conundrum, right? Um, and that uh, uh, there's lots of choices that it, uh, that it offers uh, doctors. I just think those choices should be thought through, right? And so um, whether that's uh, an advisory group like ours or an advisor or another advisory group, there's lots of great ones out there. Uh, I really do think it should be something that is thought through and thought through kind of from start to finish, right? Not just kind of uh, a one, one, one group considered and that's going to be the end of it, right? So again, if I can encourage everybody to begin with the end in mind, I think that I've done my job. Yeah, you know, a- excellent closing thoughts. And so, you know, once again, I-, I know I'm walking away with a better understanding of, of how to leverage equity in a dental practice and knowing that there's options out there. If you got that, go ahead and click like because we want you to know those things. And hopefully you have an even better understanding of the options that are available and why this is such a unique time in history. And lastly, we want you to feel differently about the different options that are that are out there for you. So, Kyle, how can we get in touch with you? How can we find you? So you're more than welcome to go on our website. It's just professionaltransition.com. Both of them are singular, professionaltransition.com. Um, you can find us on um, you know, LinkedIn. You can find us on Facebook as well. Um, I'm not on those <laughs> very often, but if you go to, if you go to our website, uh, you'll see my contact information. You can get directly a hold of me as well. Excellent. Well, hey, thank you again, Kyle. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this, but we don't want you just to listen and watch. We want you to take action because if you take action, you're going to be on that road to creating amazing life of significance and you're going to be able to do it quicker and with less effort than ever before. But you got to get clear. You got to approach this with the end in mind and have intentionality. Until next time, if you do those things, you're going to get out there and make it a great day. We'll see you again soon here on Dental Wealth Nation. See you, Kyle. Thank you. You've been listening to Dental Wealth Nation. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from the show. Join us next time as we pull back the curtain to reveal the often hidden advice and strategies used by today's most successful individuals and families and help maximize your net worth so you can take even better care of the people you love. Till next time, make sure to hit the website at DentalWealthNation.com. 